Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwash with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. We are very grateful to have with us today Professor Jeff Duffy from the Department of Engineering from the University of Auckland. Jeff has been the brains behind many novel processes and products. And for the past four decades, he's taught fluid mechanics, heat transfer, and specialized in radiation. He has been the first person in Oceania to earn a Doctor of Engineering degree for his pioneering work after his PhD and was made Fellow of the Royal Society well over three decades ago. And at that point, he was the first chemical engineer in New Zealand to do so. With his background, Jeff's got a great grasp of greenhouse gases and more specifically, the dominance of water vapor. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Jeff. The floor is yours. Welcome to Greenwashing. Fine. Uh, my pleasure to be with you today. Um, this topic of weather and climate change is, is very interesting today and high on most people's lists. So let's just start way out of it and, and talk about We talk about weather. And today, all we hear on television and radio in particular is that it's temperature change. Things are getting hotter or colder on that. Well, that's not weather. That's only part of weather. Weather, of course, incorporates rainfall. It incorporates snowfall or number of sunshine hours. It incorporates storms and wind and so on. So if we go to a particular place and we are looking at the conditions, we look at the climate at, say, if you're going to Sydney in March, you'll find what the moisture is like, how much rainfall, what the temp average temperature is like, and so on. So each city or town and area has a, a climate specification. Now, the thing about this is that the climate is a, an average of 20 to 50 years or more of the, these meteorological factors. And, of course, it's an average. Now, Averages are good, but they can also give you a misunderstanding because, for example, let's say we take Auckland, where I live, uh, if the satellite came over 100 times, let's make it in a week. And let's take it one year or one week, it comes over 70 times at night out of the 100. Next week, it comes over 70 times during the day out of 100. Well, now you've got a skewed average. So we have, we don't know how many times it comes over and what is average, but what does an average mean? So we've got to be very careful, very, very careful that we don't put all our eggs in one basket about the average temperature's gone up and so on. Well, people say, well, if the average temperature went up one degree in a hundred years. That sounds good. But a hundred years ago, they didn't have many weather stations and there was none on the oceans. Now, the oceans are 70%. Two-thirds of the world is ocean. And they didn't have a weather station 100 years ago or 100-plus years ago. So they only had them on land. And then most of the land, they didn't have them. So we're down to probably 2% of the world had weather stations. And therefore, and then 100 years ago, they didn't have any sophisticated measuring devices. So they measured temperature with thermometers. Now, a lot of those thermometers weren't graduated uh, or cross calibrated and they weren't necessarily mercury they were made out of other like alcohol th thermometers and so on and of course people measured them uh, every day at a certain time in their location and it 
course, you've got the effects of mountains and desert nearby or were they by the sea and so on. So we've got a lot of factors that the average, we say, if you're honest, what does the average mean? Well, we've got a problem. We've got a real problem there. So we then say, if we say that um, the climate has changed, what do we mean by that? Climate changes all the time because it's an average of weather. So the weather's changing overnight during the week, next week, and monthly, seasonally, annually. And then, of course, people find this, like when we first came here to Auckland, we had six months of rain. Every weekend, we had six months. Did Every weekend, we rained. This was back in the 60s, uh, late 60s. And so we began to think that was normal, but it wasn't. It's never happened since, where every week has been rainy weekends. So, again, Things shift and change because there are a few things that we need to talk about or should talk about in our thinking. The Earth is rotating. It's rotating all the time. It's it's revolving around the sun. The sun revolves. Uh, our relationship to the sun is different all the time. The moon goes around the Earth and we have a lunar cycle of about 28-something days. And so we've got effects of forces gravity, intergravitational forces between the moon and the earth. We've got lots of lots of problems and lots of differences that cause changes. And we've seen recently in the last, even today, the high pressure system to the east of, uh, of uh, Christchurch is blocking the flow of moist air down and it kept it fortunately to the right hand side of of uh, new zealand and kept it away from auckland but quite often that high is not sitting there it's it's different place it's been there a couple of times this year we've had a high there. so often that the most of the water goes with falls between sydney or australia and new zealand and then of course later on it may be another season it goes down and falls over near the chatham islands on the eastern side so again we have variations so we don't panic to say this is weather change. This is a, uh, this weather change is caused by a, some particular factor. So, so interlocking of all factors. It's interesting, Jeff. Um, I um, yeah, this whole discussion started around uh, thirty years ago, say with global warming. Uh, when people got vitally interested, I mean, you were obviously interested in your facets of of study, and so was the likes of um, John Maunder interested in weather and meteorology. Um, but all of a sudden, this became in the parlance for all New Zealanders and all sort of the Western world started beating themselves up on climate, on global warming especially. Then it changed to climate change. Now, I've got a wee bit of an experience in this that I can, um, I think you'd vouch for, I, well, I hope you might, I used to call it climate variation when I was in the in the hot seat in Wellington, and man, did the the bureaucrats despise me for that because I believe climate variation is alive and well, and still is, of course. And you've just used the word word variation, um, so climate variation would be a far smarter um, discussion to talk about, surely, as opposed to just having the concept of what I call legislated climate change which is what everyone talks about. And of course, um, we have lots of disputes about whether, uh, rec well, sorry, the records of of temperature, rain, not, not necessarily rainfall, although there has been some disputes about that in Niwa as well in the Cyclone Gabriel's uh, area. And, uh, and of course, we've got heat island effects. Uh, we've got a whole lot of 
things that just don't stack um, to, to people like me nowadays. But to most people, they do stack up because they've been sort of browbeaten and brainwashed for so long to not question it. Sorry, that's a big, long statement. But from just your introduction here, it's clear to me that nothing is settled the way the politicians are telling us. And why is it then that people like you and many others that we've had on the show aren't able to influence the political beltway the way it should be? I mean, it's, it seems to be dishonestly founded at the moment. Um, we've got a lot of a lot of a lot of data to show them. Why can't they listen to it? Well, that's a that's a political question. It is. <laughs> Just to say that if we just couple, go back on your point there, first of all, the globe isn't warming, and they realise that the globe, some parts are going up, some parts are going down, and so they re realised the term was globe was not correct. So they went to climate change. Now, climate change, if you're pretty honest, climate is an average. So climate can't cause anything because it's an average. Averages don't cause things. Weather changes, and then you've got to specify what you mean by the weather. Now, if there's a dictatorship coming from, say, um, in this case, International Panel of Climate Change, but it comes from the United Nations, if they start coming down on a mantra and they've got access to sophisticated uh, TV and and if you've got people, rich people who own most of these media and channels, you're going to get one side of the story. Now, once you get one side of the story, then you and and it's been around for a while, and they start teaching it to kids in schools, and then the kids believe it and they panic and they worry, and the science teachers don't know any different because they think it's it's all due to radiation and carbon dioxide when if they're not willing to look at it and this is where it comes back to are we willing to examine the facts now the answer of course is is probably not so i i would come down on the fact and i can't Although I'll give an example. More recently, I was probably sent to 200 TV and radio channels and broadcast uh, newspapers throughout Australia and New Zealand. I got a reply from no one. So it doesn't matter about your qualifications. It doesn't matter about it's what the agenda is. Now, let, let me just highlight it to still keep it pretty, pretty practical here. Radiation, all heat, all energy comes from the sun, but it does come as heat. It comes as radiation. So heat only is produced when it strikes solids, liquids, and a few gases. Now, if you take the few gases in the atmosphere, nitrogen is number one in New Zealand, oxygen is number two, water vapor is number three in New Zealand, argon is number four, and they make up over 99.8%. 99.8% of the atmosphere are those four gases. Now, there's a little bit of carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is only 0.042%, and the rest makes up the total of no more than 0.044 or 0.045%. So 99.95% is, of course, um, ordinary gases. Now, if we take carbon dioxide, if we take water, first of all, water is 100% natural, naturally produced. Carbon dioxide, there's a bit of argument, but let's say it's 95% natural. 
See, it's been targeted at, at cars and vehicles and power stations. But if you do an analysis, even if you look at the what's the, the literature and the researchers have done it, it's at least 80%. There are at least three publications that say it's 80. But the, if you go on the worldwide, uh, the worldwide web, <laughs> if you go on the web, you, you'll find that it's, they, they, they have a little diagram that shows us 95%. So, okay. So if that, what does that mean? It means that of all the greenhouse gases, water and 95% carbon dioxide, there's a smidgen of carbon dioxide left over. There's very, very, very little methane and very little uh, nitrous oxide. So there's 99.92, I think it is, or that or what, 99 plus anyway, of it is natural. So now you're, you're trying to tag methane. So methane is 0.00019, or if you like, one, it's 0.002%. So it's, it's virtually nothing. Half that is, is approximately as natural. If you take, well, don't do it, let's not, let's say carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, and if you don't mind the numbers, is 420 parts per million, of which 399 parts of that is natural. So we've got a problem <laughs> that we tag these things. So we are really splitting here. Yeah. We are saying it's 0.04% is carbon dioxide, out of which nearly 95% is natural. Natural. So the, what, 5% of 0.04% is the one that's going to, you know, yeah. is an existential threat? Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's really, not only is it wrong, it's dishonest. And it's it's sad because there are lots of other things. So let's, let's just, just take, if water vapour can be shown that it's the strongest greenhouse gas by far, it's 24 times higher in concentration than, than carbon dioxide, but it's also over 30 times stronger in radiation effectiveness. Now, that's easy. Go to the web yourself and look. I'll, I can give you a reference if you want it, but you can do what they call these curve overlaps. They're already on. They've been on the web for years. And then you can find out how much each contributes. And there are four factors that are pretty important. One is, of course, concentration. One, is, of course, is the overlapping effectiveness. There's competition. But there's one thing that dominates over everything else. And miss this, and you miss everything. And the, and the, this is the key: water is the only fluid in the atmosphere that condenses. Nitrogen doesn't condense. Oxygen doesn't condense. Methane doesn't condense. None of them do. But water changes phase. That is, it goes from a gas to a liquid, and also goes to a solid, which is snow and ice particles and so on. So now we've got a very unique material. So as soon as it goes into the air, it can stay as a gas or it can form micro droplets. And then the micro droplets get together and they form clouds. And two thirds of the world, 70, 66% of the world is cloud cover. Now you might say, well, that's, what's the meaning of that? Well, I can, let me just tell you what's a practical meaning. Three, uh, 13 million tons of water evaporate every second. 13 million tons. And 13 million tons come down every second. What does that equal to in terms of jumbo jets? That's 30,000 jumbo jets of water take off every second. Or if you like, 110 million jumbo jets full of water. I mean, the whole lot is water as mass. Uh, take off every hour. 
Now, this is massive. Where does that energy come from? It comes from radiation. Oh, yes, but there's some other factors, but let's just keep it keep it clean. So now what we've got is over an hour, over a year, we've got 423 million, million tons of water. And, of course, as we said, it's, it's um, 13 million tons a second around the world. Now, because water is the greatest greenhouse gas, number one, and number two exists not only as water vapour, but also as droplets, now we've got a unique position. So anybody, anybody, Niwa, anybody who talks about carbon dioxide without mentioning water is, is a public confession they don't understand. Now, you don't have to be rocket science. It's just there. It's, it's all there. And then, of course, if you're honest and you look at the spectrum of the absorption spectrum of, of carbon dioxide water, Water operates over 85% of the total range of solar energy and radiant energy from Earth, whereas carbon dioxide has four bands, two on the incoming and two on the coming from, from Earth. So it doesn't really compete very well. And, of course, it does make a small contribution, but it's pretty small. But until we're honest about it, well, we've got problems. Well, we have got problems, uh, and at the same time, we're tying ourselves up in knots about those problems to the point that we're um, altering our energy mix, we're altering uh, the cost of energy for the mums and dads and businesses in New Zealand, and we seem to be doing it based on the knowledge that we're gaining on the show, uh, all under the false premise of um, of climate change, sorry, yeah, irrefutable or irreparable. No, that's the not probably not neither of those words are right. But climate change that is um, deleterious, uh, horrible. Un, uh, yeah, we've got to limit it. We've got to limit it, and it's going to cost billions to do it. When in fact, the way I'm listening to many guests like yourself is uh, we're we're chasing a rainbow that doesn't exist. That's very true. Well, look, it, it's very simple too. If you take water vapor, what does it do? The more the earth heats up for any reason, let's assume someone says it's climate change, it's gone up one degree. Well, what happens? More water evaporates. And if there's more water evaporate, what happens? More clouds. Now, have you ever walked under a cloud or a cloud comes over on a hot sunny day? You immediately feel cooler. And it's also a bit darker because you haven't got the bright sunlight. So the clouds stop the penetration of infrared radiation and visible radiation through the cloud. And therefore, you're immediately cooler because the, you haven't got the radiant energy hitting your body. So or get under a tree and then step out again and you go up 10 degrees. And by the way, uh, temperature goes up 5, 10, 15 degrees every day. I mean, this morning it was about 9 degrees, 10 degrees in Auckland. It was about 14 degrees outside, 15 degrees. Uh, as, the day. as we were, uh, Professor Duffy, as you spoke about the carbon dioxide concentration, 419, 420 parts per million, that also is an average, isn't it? Yes. Daytime, nighttime, around plants, you know, around, say, yeah. a paddy yeah. or wheat or something. Even yeah. that is an average. So how do we come to that figure that this is what we've reached today? This is it, what it was pre-industrialization, and that's why we must panic. Well, people say because it's a gas, it's constant concentration. Now, not only is it wrong, it's misunderstanding two important things, vital. Number one, photosynthesis. So anywhere near a leaf or a 
crop, the carbon dioxide is absorbed into the leaf, it breaks up the carbon, and the carbon makes cellulose, it makes oranges or flowers or whatever it is. But it's interesting. I say to people, where does orange juice come from? I say, oh, it comes from the sky. It comes from the carbon dioxide and the molecule spits out, the leaf spits out oxygen and it takes the carbon and makes all the molecules, the apple core, the apple skin, the uh, yellow, the yellow skin of the orange or the white stuff underneath. It's all comes from the air. So carbon dioxide is the fuel, if you like, the fertilizer. Now there's a bit coming from the land, of course, the rotting leaves and in the dirt and so on. But that's number one. Number two, and it's often missed out, we've got plankton in the sea. And what does that do? It takes the carbon dioxide and it forms, makes mollusks and shells, little crab shells, little shells of living animals, and also later on they precipitate. So carbon dioxide in the water, in ordinary tap water, like Coke or soda stream, it's acidic, always acidic. Carbon dioxide in the sea is never, ever, ever acidic. It forms mollusks and shells and forms bicarbonates and other things. I won't go into the detail ever. Let's say this. People say the oceans are becoming more acidic. Now, what's that say? That says to the person saying that, I do not understand. You can't have an alkaline thing becoming more acidic. You can only have it becoming less alkaline. So it'll never, ever, ever become acidic. So the ocean, whatever it's got, mollusks, shells, and material that takes in the carbon dioxide. Now, of course, this opens up a can of worms because you you drink carbon dioxide bubble, carbon dioxide in a, in a can of Coke. It's acidic because it forms carbonic acid, and so it's acidic. So we've got that problem alone shows, and that's the school kids don't have that. The school kids are not told that. They don't understand that. Now, then, of course, the big issue, of course, is the fact that this has been propagated and without understanding the, the valuable, without carbon dioxide and without the processes that convert carbon dioxide into oxygen, that's where we get oxygen from. And carbon is makes cellulose. It makes leaves and stems and tree trunks, and that all comes from the air. Now, let's just say a little bit comes from ground. Yeah. And, of course, they've labelled carbon dioxide as a pollutant. You hear that every day. Um, they talk about the carbon dioxide pollution. I mean, Russell Norman from the Green, formerly from the Green Party and now Greenpeace, is adamant. Of, uh, he just keeps peddling that myth um, when you and I and others know it's the um, fertiliser of life, effectively. And uh, I've read, uh, I've said this on the show before, that I used to make a statement that, um, well, if you're not breathing out CO2, effectively you're dead. And no one wants that, do they? Um, not not before time anyway. And um, and you couldn't even get a laugh. You couldn't get humour out of people because they oh, are so yeah. beaten by the fact that CO2s are pollutant. Well, it's unbelievable. monoxide is. So if, yes. you're, if you turn, you lock up your garage and start your car, you'll mm. get carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, if you have a heater in your house without ventilation, you get carbon di extra carbon dioxide and you go off to sleep. And you don't die from carbon dioxide poisoning, but you die from the fact that you've got not enough oxygen. Oh, and you could wear a, wear a mask, uh, wear a mask for months on end, and what do you get? I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of debate about wearing a mask too, um, Jeff. Well, that's, that's, I'll give an example. See, ex inhale in the atmosphere now, there's about 420 parts a million. 
Now, you breathe it in. When you breathe it out, you breathe it out at 40,000 parts per million. Now, if you go into a lecture room, say the university or school, it's 1,000 to 2,000 parts per million. If you go to the pub, it's 2,500 parts per million. And if you're in a submarine, you live on it for six months at five to 6,000 parts per million. You live on it. It's in there all the time. So, And, of course, plants die below 150. So you can see carbon dioxide is the... Is is absolutely vital for life, and, and and so it's so very important. And it's as I said, it's carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. Yes, it'll send you off to sleep if you don't have oxygen. That's the that's that's why we have ventilation. That's why we have flues in the lounge room where someone take the gases away. The gases have got to get be exhausted either by ventilation or by ex- using a flue in your lounge room or something. Hmm. So it is important. That, um, you made a statement earlier that um, greenhouse, ga- oh, sorry, water vapor was the only greenhouse gas that can um, that has three states, solid liquid yeah. gas. I mean, most people wouldn't think of that, Jeff. Um, you know, I I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. Um, how well, f- it's, it's the only gas condensed. So, if you look at all the gases, let's take the top five: oxygen, nitrogen, argon, carbon dioxide, and and water vapor. What does water vapor do that nothing, no one else does? No, nothing else does. It forms droplets. It forms rain. It forms mists, fogs, and sleet. And then when it freezes up there, it forms snow and ice crystals and hail. So you've got all those things. Now you say, people say, oh, carbon dioxide is causing all the trouble. Well, please answer all those questions about clouds, rain, mist, fog, sleet, ice crystals, snow, and hail, because they're all there. And if you're taking 423 million, million tonnes come down every year, you've got to include that. And, of course, the Earth is rotating. Now, once the Earth's rotating, what have we got? Winds, storms. We've got thermals. That's what the people go up on their uh, hang gliders and so on and and, uh, other devices to fly around. So, But they don't talk about that. They only talk about radiation. So it really is a, a sad day that science teachers... Um, people at the university even are not talking about that and 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 not talking about this phase change see this let me say let me just i've got it here just a little note there are five things that are vital in our atmosphere today number one is radiation all energy comes from the sun okay number two is the natural water cycle so that as the earth heats up more water evaporates more water evaporates, more droplets form, more droplets coalesce to form clouds. Clouds are like umbrellas to start with. Then they coal- droplets coalesce and they rain. So you've got this water cycle. It's the natural water cycle. Then you've got, and this is what's left out almost completely, and you know, I don't know, today we live by the water here in Auckland, and the wind has been horrendous today, and the leaves and trees are moving. Where does that come? That's not radiation. That's dynamic kinetic energy forces now people say oh but that's only a little thing no it's not it's very big and if you've been on sailing ships or what's the sailing races or you, you you've been out in the weather yourself uh, where you the wind has been fierce the third thing of course is the phase change the change of state now it's by the way ice can go straight to gas and not go through the liquid state. So you can, and I mentioned to Don just recently, you take your trousers, put them outside in the rain or in the, in the snow, in minus 10 or something, bring them in after a little while and shake them, 
and it's totally dry. Doesn't form any water because ice goes straight to gas. Now that's not well known, but it's well known. It's one of the and let me just add to, to to show you why it's so different. Water, when it freezes, is the only fluid or liquid in the world, in and nothing ever we know about that floats in itself when it freezes. Now, if it didn't, it would crush all the whales and sharks and fish underneath it if it sank. It's the only fluid that forms a floats on itself. Now, the North Pole is totally floating ice. And of course, it was, it's been there for years, of course, and it decreases <laughs> and every six months and increases in the next six months. I should say something about that. But how might we say water is unique because it phase changes? And then the, the fifth one is the cycles. We have earth rotating. So the core, the molten core of the earth is rotating. The, the magnetic field which we, if we didn't have it, if the earth wasn't solid all the way through, we'd die. Because the wind, the solar wind, they don't talk about that either. Radiation comes from the sun, but that's not all. This solar wind, these are particles, so charged particles traveling at very high speed. There's about two going through your body and my body every second. They're traveling at 800 meters a second. They come from galactic outer space or from the Milky Way or from the sun. And the earth's magnetic field deflects them away. And that's why you've seen the aurora up about 50, 100 kilometers up. You've got these bright interactions between the magnetic fields and of the Earth, produced by the Earth, and these particles. So we would die if we we're bombarded with particles. That's why they study it when they have spaceships and so on, to make sure they don't get bombarded with particles. So just to re repeat, radiation is important, but not all radiation. So light doesn't do a thing except it's vital for photosynthesis. So what does light do? Well, light, we've got eyes that we... I'm, I'm thinking I'm on TV now. <laughs> we've got eyes which pick up the um, visible light and we can discern different colours and shapes and the rate things move to and from and so on. That's one thing. But our nerve endings are eyes. They pick up radiation, radiant energy. So the nerves our eyes, they pick up radiant energy. And then the last one, which is not good, is ultraviolet. And the ultraviolet affects our skin, causes little black spots as you get older and uh, damages our eyes. That's why we wear sunglasses. And further up up in the sky, uh, in the tropos above the troposphere and the stratosphere, it converts oxygen to ozone, which then, of course, is uh, very important to gobble up the bad UV. So most of the bad UV is gobbled up upstairs. Uh, but infrared and visible are vital. It, visible is vital for the photosynthesis and plankton and and uh, on Earth on plants. And of course, um, it keeps us warm. So when you feel warm, that's not ultraviolet. That's infrared. So what makes us feel warm is the infrared radiation. It's harmless. Now it uh, won't, won't burn your skin. I mean, you can burn yourself, of course, by putting against it, you know, but it won't form black spots, but ultraviolet will react, cause biological reactions. Okay, so, so quick summary, a quick summary. Radiation is number one. Number two is the water, natural water cycle. Number three is the turbulent mixing of kinetic forces in the air and the ocean, by the way. Got conveyor belts in the ocean. Then we've got phase change, change of state, solid to liquid to, to gas and thicky vice and all the way, other way around. And we've got cycles. 
Now, we haven't talked about the sun cycles, the moon cycle, there's magnetic field cycles. There are a lot more, but they have a big effect on weather and weather change. So as, as I'm listening to you, Jeff, it strikes me again and again, there is a whole lot more that's going on than just the carbon dioxide or the carbon emissions. I They often use this, you know, CO2 as carbon interchangeably. But yeah. it is not that simple as saying that if we sort out the 0.4% of which 95% is natural, we can actually control the Earth's, uh, you know, natural changes, natural processes. But yet, that's what science has boiled it down to. How did we get this stupid? Well, I don't know if that's science. You see, with all due respect to our politicians and our media and even our people on TV, and with with due respect, they only hear what they've been told. And there are a few science people who will get funded and get paid to do things, and they'll do it because they're getting funded. And by the way, just to not correct you, but just to highlight, it's not 0.4%, it's 0.04%. carbon dioxide and 0.04% natural of that 0.042. So it's only, it's 20, if you like, 22 molecules in a million that are causing their trouble. That's their trouble because it's all in the brain because it doesn't work. I'll give you just one dramatic effect. When water evaporates, it's just a side issue, but it just shows how big, and no one talks about it. When water evaporates, it forms little droplets, micro droplets, you can't see them. Now, when they amalgamate so that it rains 13 million tonnes a second, you know, the actual agglomeration, the surface area, the little droplets have got a surface area, and when they kiss each other and make up and cuddle and form a bigger droplet, the surface area changes 42 times the surface area of the Earth per hour. 42 times the surface area of the air. Now, you know how big the surface area of the Earth is. It's 42 times that per hour as as they make to form rain, a raindrop. So the little droplets in the air, in the sky and clouds, to get together, have got to change the surface area by 42 times the surface area of the Earth. Now, that's easy to calculate. Anyone can calculate that. It's no you know, brain damage for that. So it's it's a um, a bigger picture thing. And it's not just, just, just quantity. See, water vapour is uh, has a certain amount. It's, it's 1%. And it's 10,000 parts per million. Now, if we, well, perhaps to illustrate to the audience would be this. Let's assume the whole atmosphere equals the population of Auckland. 1.7 million people, okay? So the atmosphere is 1.7 million molecules. Water vapour is 10,000. Carbon dioxide is 700. And methane is three. So what we're saying, if you talk about, and of that three, half of those jokers, a natural, and of the seven hundred, seven hundred molecules or people in New Auckland, of that six hundred and fifty plus, a natural. The rest are the ones that are causing the problem. So that's where we go. We're getting it wrong, you see. And if we could have open debate and discussion, but they close you down. That's the problem. And um, and this is all provable, by the way. So, Jeff. In terms of um, lecturing uh, students on this stuff, would you be disappointed if you had um, former students going out and peddling a story that's 
different to this. They've found uh, that your hypothesis are wrong or hypothesis is wrong. Um, it just, um, it's. I suppose that's possible. Uh, you're making it sound really credible to us tonight or today. And um, uh, But you will have people that will doubt you, I imagine. Well, how can we say many, some years ago, I gave a talk when someone from Niwa was there and they asked me, would I come back or go head to head with the Niwa representative? I said, sure. But I said, on one condition, he goes first. And number two, I do not talk about him or any of his slides. I'll just talk about, I'll just show you what I've got, the evidence and so on, which, and I'll give you the references so you can go home and do it yourself. It's not like Duffy's data you've got to use. Nothing to do with my data. It's to do with what's on the web, which is everyone's on. And you can't say it's wrong because it's been there for 20, 50 years, particularly the the um, water, water uh, humidity data, you know. Anyway, so at the end of that, people was, were kind of just didn't know which way to go. And one person said, um, why are you opposite to the press and opposite to the – I said, well, I'm a – I explained that a chemist understands more of chemistry, of interaction, of binding of molecules. A biochemist is looking at the biological reactions and interconnectivity and perhaps a big too. The physicist is looking at the physics of radiation and so on, but only the engineers are interested in the massive movements as we've got winds and storms and that. That's to do with motion. That's kinetic energy. And so I said, we've got lots of things that are outside the realm. And I'm not saying the physicists can't handle it. Some brilliant guys around. I'm not saying they can't handle it. But they haven't been exposed to to, to um, the forces. They're just talking about heat. They're just talking about thermal heat. But what I say is you've got, look, for electricity, you've got to have a voltage difference to get electric electricity to, to flow. As soon as you turn the switch on, 240 volts drives the electrons down. Okay, with heat, you've got to have a high temperature to low, but you've got other things as well. You've got pressure driving forces. You've got humidity driving forces. You've got concentration driving forces. You've got other driving forces, and if you don't mention those, chemical driving forces, biochemical driving forces. If you don't include that in your total repertoire of understanding what's happening in the world, then it's like the flea on the elephant. You're talking about the flea on the elephant. And basically, you can blindfold yourself and touch an elephant and feel, oh, what terrible, that's cardboard, that's, that's leather or something. Or grab the horn and think of the, 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 or the tail and feel, oh, this is, this is a snake. But if you blindfold, you're only looking at the one thing. And of course, Chemical engineers, we're process engineers. I had just to explain, I'll give one quick illustration. A chap from America, he'd been 40 years in climate change, and I actually said to him that the temperature, the humidity can go up when the temperature goes down. He says, I don't believe you. And he's been working in the field for 40 years. So I sent him up my slides on it, and I rang him up and I took him through it, and he said, I never knew that. And the thing is, what why? Because chemical engineers and mechanical engineers make dryers. So we understand what they call adiabatic, no heat loss, adiabatic humidification, which means as the temperature goes down, the, the humidity can go up. So you get more water out of the, like that's how you do freeze dry coffee, or that's how you dry wood. You don't, if you dry wood at high temperatures, it'll buckle. 
you dry coffee, you'll get rid of the high temperatures, you get rid of the taste. So you've got to lower the pressure. And of course, lowering the pressure and having the right conditions, you can actually get uh, this just change. So it's it's a fundamental thing. Now, unless we bring processes, and as we said, processes have got two factors, driving forces and resistances. Unless we look at both those and examine them, we will not be able to. And if we just look one or two of them, well, it's the flea on the elephant again. You're studying the flea, suddenly looking at the elephant. Jeff, I'd like to know what your thoughts are about the uh, volcano and Tonga and the amount of water that supposedly went into the atmosphere. And then we'll go on to perhaps a wider remit um, of your, you know, your your expertise in chemical engineering and some of your developments that you've you've had over time. But first of all, let's talk about the volcano in Tonga 18 months, two years ago. Okay, well, if you do a, a quick study or review of volcanoes, you'll find that, number one, most volca- active volcanoes are under the ocean. So 80% are under the ocean. Why? Because we've got these um, cleavage planes and we've got carbon dioxide bubbling out of and methane bubbling out and by the way little animals live off of stuff they said that when they take pictures around there they gobble up this they they, they live off carbon dioxide it's like mcdonald's to them but in the deep part of the ocean they it's liquid liquid carbon dioxide's bubbling out all the time or liquid methane's bubbling out okay okay so it dispersed into the ocean now when you get a movement of the outer crust and you get a push up of it, you get, of course, a, a surface volcano. It may not erupt. It may just bubble up and more, some are around the world now that uh, haven't fired stuff up into the air. But they bubble up and they drain down and they get bigger and bigger with time. And some remain, you can see the molten stuff going down as well. Now, when you come to that volcano just a couple of years ago, it was the highest uh, um Let's say the highest has got a scale. I, I've forgotten the actual, it's a special name for it, but it measures the height at which it travels the solids, which are little particles, the hot gas and the water and vapor and the carbon dioxide it goes up 70 to 80,000 meters. And the highest, this is one of the highest ones that's been on for a long time. Most of them only go up 20, 30,000 meters. And uh, uh, of course, these, this one went up very high. But in fact, it was one of the highest for some time. Now, how can we say when something goes up, it takes stuff with it. So other alongside the jet flume of particles and hot gas and water, vapour, it's not liquid there, sucked into the sides of it and come up with it. So you set up a cyclical or just mixing pattern. Now, as it goes up, the molecules in the air are further apart, so it's colder. It's a, In fact, it's six and a half degrees drop for every kilometre you go up. But when you fly an aeroplane, you know we're travelling at 10,000 metres, the outside temperature is minus 50 or minus 55. So you get up 10,000 metres, which and this, these volcanoes often go above that, and this one went well above that. We've got, of course, cold air, but this jet coming from the volcano is still hot. So it's still vapour, and so you ended up with water droplets forming much, much higher than normal, plus a lot of dust. Now, up there, and you can see it from just even today, you can see the clouds moving, if you look every day, moving quickly, and they're travelling at 100, 200 kilometres an hour across the sky. 
They're not just stratified clouds. Now, above that, you get you seem to have more stationary clouds, but they're sheer, and it's caused by the rotation of the Earth, and it's caused by the fact that molecules near a surface travel with the surface. So if you have a car and you've got a molecule on your roof, the molecules right near the roof of your car are stick to the car. Now, they don't stick, there's no glue, but they're more likely to stay near there. The ones further away get affected, and we have a flow stream over the top of it. So when there's near a surface or near a, a jet, those ones are sucked in and then they cool down, and so they had a lot of water condensing and forming ice particles as well as the dirt and dust, which then ag aggregates, cools, agglomerates and starts to settle and fall, and we get all sorts of clouds and other things occurring. Now, the actual quantity of water, when you sit down and work it out, is not very high. So uh, someone sent me something a few months ago or maybe a year ago saying there was 53,000 swimming pools of water. And I thought, no, that's nothing <laughs> because it is 13 million tonnes a second around the world. So a few swimming pools, uh, even 10,000, 20, 50,000, 100,000 swimming pools of water is not very large. So, yes, it affects it, but it's in terms of the total amount of water vapour in the air, it's not that great. Now, it's certainly, we've had Mount Pinatabo when it had the dust in the air for years. We did have temperature changes on the earth in days gone by. In fact, it's about every 220, 230 years we get a big volcano. And we're due to have one because we're coming into this next cycle and we probably have to new ones in between the 2030 to 2040. We'll have another big one, uh, which will be bigger, bigger than this one we've seen. And so it's traceable because it's been happening the last five, if you take the last 230 years, 220, 230 years, and bounce back over time, you'll find there was a big volcano. So once we get the maximum temperature and it starts to get cool, and it will be getting cooler shortly and uh, worldwide, and uh, it's cyclical and it's predictable because it's happened before. It's not predictable because you can mathematically model it. It's predictable the last five, six on the six on before us all reached a peak and all dropped off, formed a trough, reached a peak again and dropped off. It's a cyclical movement. And we haven't talked anything about cycles yet, but there's the solar cycles, there's the sunspot cycles every 11 years. You get sunspot variations down to zero, and we're in the 25th cycle now, and we're about to get a low number of cycles. That affects it too. You've got the magnetic force cycles, the moon We've got our annual, we've got a monthly cycle with the moon. We've got annual cycles because of interacting planets and and uh, the uh, with with uh, the sun and so on. And we've got these longer term, right out to 230,000 years, which is called the Milankovitch cycle, which is the fact that the sun is on an elliptical path. The moon is on an elliptical path. It doesn't, it's not the same distance from the earth. That's why we get tides every day. That's why we get in tides every month because the moon is closer to the earth at that period so is that kind of yep that's that's a good answer thank you i mean because you do hear people talk about how the volcano the tongan volcano was uh and exacerbated um the weather events we're having in new zealand at the moment you see this in the media and you think how true is that um, but you've put it into some sort of context and i'm i'm thankful for that well if and I, I, did i just hear you say jeff that you said it's going to get cooler soon Yes. 
So well, we are not the 1.52 degrees, whatever happens. <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to predict the, the temperatures, but temperatures have gone up since the Little Ice Age. We know the Little Ice Age where they had shops on the Thames River. They people skated summer and winter into the across the to the um, shops. They stayed on the on the Thames. Now that was a, a Little Ice Age. Now. As a result, the crops went to, went to custard. The food went down. Now, fortunately, there's less than a billion people there, 1,500, 1,600. But now we've got 8 billion. So if we go down the sewer in the next 10 or 15, 20 years, based on the historical record, not based on modelling, then we're going to have a crop reductions. And so the, we're going to have colder, less yields and so on. So we, we could be in the cactus with time. And um, so that's something to keep in your back of your mind. But the um, that's not the issue. The issue here is that we have cyclical variations in temperature over periods of time which have history to it. And they're all obtained data from tree rings, data from ice core samples and so on, and even stomata. Which is the leaf, uh, where the uh, for the leaf uh, have, takes the carbon dioxide in. They've looked at the number of stomata in the leaves, with old leaves and so on. They date they carbon date the leaves, and you can find the, the variations of processing needed in that as well. But I think at that time they didn't have our politicians, you know, pay a bit of a tax, and they could have controlled the weather then, as uh, David Parker seems to think he can do now. Yeah. Now there's nothing we can do really. Um, I had a company ring up and they were serious. They wanted to take the carbon dioxide, I've forgotten the number, they wanted to use 700 or 800 Boeing jet engines in a, and suck the air down deep into the water and get the water, the ocean, soak up the carbon dioxide. Concept, fine. Method, stupid. Because if you ever blow on a, a straw into a, a liquid, you bring, it bubbles up. All you blow in, blow the stuff down using these jet engines. It would blow up into a massive tidal wave of water when it comes up. If the water, the top, the air stays as a bubble. It doesn't disperse as droplets of air. <laughs> so anyway, they, they weren't. It was so serious. They were willing to pay me a fortune to work on it, but I said no, it won't work. If, 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 I'm sure if they um, thought you could um, change the weather by taxing, it would have been done long before Jasper. But um, <laughs> that's a cynical view. Just for the layman and me, I've always been mystified by um, stories of cloud seeding to make yeah. it rain. How does that work, or is it is it even a real thing? I, I mean, oh, it's yeah. an American thing that I've read about. Very, very real, and uh, there's a lot of concern now. Uh, for example, it started many years ago when they had, uh, they, I think it was silver chloride, I think, very fine silver chloride, and they in America, and I'm guessing 40, 50 years ago now, and um, they to actually form seeds, droplets. See, see, water vapor, water condenses on on small particles. Um, it could be organic particles, or it could be in just dust particles. And all together, the water droplets get together. So the idea of seeding was to take an area which is very dry and create rain. The object was very good. But now there's a guy in America, and he was studying for 30 years. He took the rainwater and snowfall at the beginning of every, for 30 years, went in his area, and he found that this, I've forgotten the numbers, but he went the silver, still using silver-based materials, but the silver went up, of something like 30 to 40 times 
over the, the last 30 years. So they're still doing it. Uh, it's a biological weapon as well. It can, you, can, you can put stuff in and it biologically gets into the air and into our water. Uh, into our water, it gets ultimately washed into the rivers and so on. Trace, and it could be trace elements and so on. So it is a serious thing, but it has been used in uh, over in um, Middle East, off Egypt, there where it's tried, and they've actually can change the shape. And I've seen pictures of showing a triangle of area where the plane's flown, where the water's been contained in it. So yes, it's possible. Yes, it's re realizable. Yes, it sometimes can be good, but in bad hands or with the wrong materials, it could be very bad. Now, it's, if you go on the web too, you'll find on the geophysical type of stuff, you, you'll find the jet planes that have nozzles sticking out of their jets. Others have planes with tanks inside them with stuff that you can just spray out the back of it. So it's very real and um, yeah. The the earliest reference to this to cloud seeding that I have found, gentlemen, is uh, Seymour Hersh. He's the he was a Pulitzer Award winning journalist. His article in 1972, published in the New York Times, then titled "Rainmaking," is used as a weapon of war by the U.S., which described how the U.S. military had been seeding clouds in Asia, which of course was during Vietnam. Yeah. This is also something that was collaborated in Indian military history journals that I read uh, yeah. growing up. This for someone yeah. you know, who's never heard of this before, you might like to look up Operation Popeye on U.S. Yeah. military history journals online, and they speak about the fact that how you know sixty years ago these uh, geniuses they managed to increase the length of the Vietnamese, managed to double the length of the Vietnamese monsoon. Yeah. The operation, I think, they codenamed it "Make Mud, Not War." to you know, defeat <laughs> yeah. Vietnam and 60 years later you talk about it and it's a conspiracy yes well it's it's like a lot of things that people start off like AI the IR artificial intelligence you start off with good ideas and so on and then it becomes can be misused and abused and then of course now um violated and uh, some universities are now saying that students can't use a computer to answer their questions they've got to write them out so because they can download it from the AI, put it, put the words in and get the best essay you want. And if sometimes on the climate stuff, if you put your stuff in on climate and you, they find, or you mentioned you're interested in this and this, and they find out in your intonations that it's, you don't believe in carbon dioxide, they'll, they'll gear it to your answer. Very cunning because it's artificial intelligence. Okay. So, so, um, just in recent weeks, we've had, um, some, feedback asking us to do a topic called about chemtrails. Now, I don't know whether chemtrails are real or imaginary, but some people believe that they are a worthy topic for us to investigate. So have you heard of chemtrails, Jeff? Yeah, well, it's the same thing, seeding and chemtrails. It's the same same thing. You can do it in a zone, you can just seed, or you can have jets flying across and you'll see different patterns. And some people, of course, all gone paranoid now they, they they think everything's succeeded all the time but they had not a thing in the paper recently where the some planes were flying around at night and they're probably pilots learning to fly at night but they call them seeding planes you see because it rained and then of course if you have a lot of rain it's caused by seeding and and you end up i'm not saying it has not i'm, I'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that it uh, needs investigation, but it needs people. It's like a lot of things are hidden. You, you don't know. But chemtrails are real, and uh, they can be natural or they can be um, caused by 
injection into the jets or injection from the wings. And you've seen that on the web, you'll show nozzles coming mm. from the wings or from the back of the plane or in the jets as well. Well, it's just the nefarious use of um, technologies that bothers me. I mean, I'm not anti anti um, evolution of good ideas. It's when they're used for nefarious gain or means yeah. that, that bug me. So, look, one thing we, you know, we're an hour into this interview almost, and one thing we haven't talked about is um, some of your, your, as I, for the layman, inventions, your technologies that you developed, mm-hmm. your ideas, your, is it called fluid, uh, or you'll correct me, fluid dynamics, uh, things like that. You've yeah. you've been right at the cutting edge of some very big things. And um, I have to say it was a colleague of ours that uh, put me onto you and said, you need to interview this man. He's done more than most New Zealanders would ever know about. So, Jeff, we'd love to we'd love to break out some of your your best ideas. Oh yeah, well look, it's it's uh, uh, like a lot of things that how can we say cross pollination is is the is often the way thinking outside the box and then build another box and think outside that box, and that's that's what I've been interested in because there are mechanisms that are core. Uh, cause and effect mechanisms and there are mechanisms that are not being used for example i'll give you an example and it's a simple one a canoe going down a river doesn't go down side on it goes long lengthways and if you put it inside on it'll turn so and the canoe in the middle of the river goes faster than the canoe near the edge because there's a profile a velocity profile so what i did basically was take fibers and i put them in a fluid stream and I pumped them at a high speed, not too high speed, only about 20, 30 meters a second, into a rotating disc. Now, it was actually in Glad Saxa in, in Copenhagen when they made coffee. It was, a, in fact, Naira Atomizers, the name of the company, Naira, and they had a rotating disc, and I pumped it on the underneath side of the disc. And the liquid fibers, they went, the suspension was only about 3%. It traveled from almost five to 10 meters a second to 50 meters, 150 meters a second, and then left the tip. And as it left the tip, the big particles, the sand went in one zone, the big particles went in the other one, and, and so on, and the clumps in another zone. So we could have around this, this is a screen, it was um, a way of separating particles. Now, as you know, in your kitchen, if you take a kitchen sieve or if you take a uh, in your garden, if you have a little box with grids in it, you, you put the stuff in and you shake it around and the dust forms through and little stones stay on top or in the kitchen, the big hunks won't go through. And so it's called a barrier screen. You make little holes and little holes or big holes, depending on what you want. Now, this way, it was totally against barrier. It was saying, who cares about a barrier? There's no restriction. We'll just use shear and forces to separate and that's how that one worked now out of that came other things and i i won't go into that but I, I, my main thing was what when when you go into an into an industry and they're doing something i'll give you one an opposite kind of thing a company in auckland uh, was making wallpaper and they wanted to change to a new embossed wallpaper that means the coating expanded when it heated up and formed an embossing it was so it wasn't a smooth flat paper. It was now had embossing, and you've probably seen embossed wallpaper. And then I had to slow the machine down. So they called me in because I was in infrared. And so I took a plastic pipe. It was about uh, 200 millimetres in diameter, quite big, 150, 200 millimetres. I put slots in it and put a fan on it. And when I came in, they set it up for me, and they said, where's your heater? 
I said, I'm not having a heater. And they said, well, we want to get speed the machine up. We need more heat. I said, no, you don't. It's not heat that's the problem. Your problem is when the vapour comes from the coating, it stays and travels with the coating. So if I can scavenge it away, I can expose the next part to the heat because it's molecules. So sometimes you've got to get rid of the molecules between the object and the other thing, which uh, which um, uh, then allows the heat to get out. So by and another another example, another company making uh, in Auckland Penrose making um, powder coated coat hangers, and they when they ran white, yellow, and other light coloured stuff, they had to slow the machine right down. And but someone heard about me doing infrared. They called me out and I said, "Well, we, 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 our machine speeds are so low, black and red, and that are terrific. We we can form powder coated." Coatingers. So I said, give me a pair of gloves and a piece of whatever it is, wood or a, a, a tray, ideally. So I held the tray near the objects of white stuff coming through and they cured. And they said, fantastic, but you're not heating anything. I said, no, what I'm doing is I'm firing the infrared energy back on the, the, um, on the coat hangers. So now I'm getting double use. He said, oh, beautiful. We don't need to buy new heaters. I said, no, no, what you did is, is a, but he said, well, we'll buy some of these reflectors. What do, you, what do you reckon? I said, no, 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 you buy readmitters. If you buy a reflector, it only lasts two weeks, but if you buy a emitter which absorbs the energy and fires it back again at the speed of light, then of course you just have a, you've now changed the situation where the, it gets multiple issues. It's feedback of the energy. And uh, that, that's pretty important. Uh, how can we say it's 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 like how how does a thermos flask work? See, a thermos flask has got a, a mirror on the inside and a and a vacuum, but in its own. So when the heat from the coffee or goes through the glass into the mirror, so it fires it across the vacuum, and the other side is mirrored, and it fires it back again at the speed of light. So it gets its own back. Now it's firing back like a machine gun. Uh, of course, it's 186,000 miles a second, 300,000 kilometers a second. So what happens is it's you're you're not losing much. The only bit you lose is on the outside. The thick glass slowly warms up, and after your coffee is much cooler in late in the afternoon. Now, why does it work? Well, it works because you're reusing the radiant energy. You might say, "Well, that's that's not new." Yes, it is. If you don't reuse it, you're wasting it. So one simple thing in, in in any invention, and I'm not using it as an invention, I was just using it as a principle, you actually look at what's happening and then you use what is happening to make an object to utilise that to, to, to it. So I'll give you another couple of others. Um, I took fibres, hammer waste paper, hammer milled it, into single fibres, sucked in fertiliser, dust, not fertiliser, I formed pellets, and when you drop them from an aeroplane, the particles, you know, in a wind, fertiliser dust gets blown to the next paddock or the other guy's paying the bills. It doesn't pay the bills, he gets a free load of fertiliser. These landed exactly where you wanted in the paddock when they crop dusted. And so they were pellets, had fertiliser inside, of course, I was aiming to paper mache New Zealand. <laughs> Not really. Uh, I was uh, <laughs> using, using waste paper. And so the, when it rained, it slowly illutriated or dissolved the fertiliser into the paddock 
and um, and you uh, fibers de 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 degenerate anyway. They're made out of carbon, they're carbon-based material, cellulose, and so there's no problem there. And so that was one. But the the one before that was at the Liquid Fuels Trust Board of New Zealand said we've got this coal in down the South Island, and it breaks up. It's friable. And I said, good. Well, let's suck the coal, not the coal, big hunk of coal, just the dust like a vacuum cleaner into the fibres, like which are hammer milled and now formed like like cotton wool, and formed a formed a little particle and put a little bit of binding in with it and made a particle. And now we've got the coal dust now being used. The the fibres were made from dry newsprint, and we had a new coal particle where we could now use the coal. And so that was the type of thing is, is to say, well, what have they got? Um, what have we got that we're not using and how can we use it better? So, so Jeff, sorry to interrupt. What was that last point about the coal particle? What was its use? I didn't quite get. Well, it's dust. It's such a friable coal. It's a very yes. rich coal, carbon and hydrogen, and it breaks up very easily, forms a lot of dust. Now, the dust is use useless. So they sell the coal, but they can't sell the dust. So I took the dust and made it into a particle, a pellet. And, of course, you need a bit of binder to hold the particle together. It's still dry. It's dry coal inside the fibres. Yeah. Now, that, this was all because one day, and this was way back, New Zealand Steel, they're pumping iron ore in from the iron ore from the beach. You know, they're making iron ore from uh, and uh, hydraulically. They're pumping in special pipes. And the pipes would wear out in six months, nine months, a year. And they had to have special coating on the inside, a special um, lining on the inside. So I took the, the coal, uh, sorry, the iron ore or the iron material particle, and I could, and I had fiber suspension, about 3%, 2%. And I poured in the coal and transported it down the pipeline. And when I stopped, I turned the pump off, the coal, the Particles of sand or iron ore couldn't settle because the fibers are in the way. So now I formed a new system. And of course, when they, this is, this is all didn't take off, by the way, they were very serious. They hadn't built the pipeline at, um, at, um, at New Zealand Steel then. And they were very serious about that. It was too early. It was just a few weeks before their decision. And I showed you if you stop the pump. And so I later on, I did that with, I took stones and, Pellets and at Winston Quarries before the Winston, you know, the quarries in Auckland where they've now got houses. There's a big quarry there. And I used to pump big in big pipes, 200 millimeter pipes, uh, all sorts of things, stones, whatever it is, in fiber suspensions. And this, when you stop the pump, they said, Oh, this pump's going to block up. No, I said, I'll come back next week. I came back a couple of weeks later, I pressed the button and it took off because the particles stayed in the suspension. So I came up with the idea of mining a forest. Rather than chop logs in and bring them in, why don't we put pumps, pipe out there, big pipes, and pump short logs in in a fiber suspension? Stop it, and you need a, less than 1%. They stay up there. They don't settle because there's fibers in the way. So when you start <laughs> to pump up, it just flow again. So they're the types of things. Now, some of those so, things were um, got a report. So what? So Sorry to interrupt. What was the most commercialized and um, lucrative concept oh, that you developed question. that's another question very difficult thing at the university very difficult to get uh, winston winston's at the time the technical director they gave us a hundred thousand dollars to develop that 
and then they closed it all down. So they had their Winston quarry, had their big tanks that they used for pumping clay and all sorts of things. I was pumping fibre suspensions and stones and all sorts of, and they thought it was a, the main, it was ants' pants. But they closed it down. Of course, then it was very hard. You had to take patents in my day, and when I'm saying the 70s and 80s and 90s, you had to take out patents. The university often didn't pay you to take out patents. You had to get funding yourself, and this meant a lot of things. So a lot of these things I just published because I just I was on with the next thing. I've got another thing to come up, you know. So it was just a joy of discovery, I think, more than anything. <laughs> so I wouldn't say anything was lucrative at all, but it was fun. You know, meanwhile, we just you spoke about NZ Steel and NZ Steel. Isn't it them, Don, that have recently got the taxpayer-funded uh, millions? Oh, oh yeah, but but uh, they're doing it now. There's a lot of skullduggery going on now. And I would use that term, skullduggery. Yeah, 140, was it 160 million? And seeing that you spoke about coal and, you know, reusing coal dust in South uh, Ireland, yeah. we recently have come across one of our listeners who wrote in to us saying that, they are, you know, they obviously have some sort of a place, their concessionaire yeah. on Dockland, and they've been sent a questionnaire by yeah. Dock asking them, do they use coal since they are on Dockland because Dock has signed up to a net zero emissions? So this is where we are heading meanwhile. Yeah, but see, it's it's not only stupid, it's worse than stupid, because if you go to the BP report, 40 years ago, 80% of the world's fuels were oil, gas, and coal. Ten, ten years ago, it was oil. At the latest report, 80% is still oil, gas, and coal. Why? Because the third world's becoming now richer. People want more electricity, and they, as they develop in India and Africa and so on, they're going to have more power stations. Where's the fuel coming from? You see, and of course, the wind turbines are uneconomic. Takes nine years before they pay for themselves. You've got to build all this steel and tubes and reinforced concrete, and you've got to put it in, and then you've got to use uh, four hundred liters of oil a year just to keep the bearings. And you can't have the big turbine sitting there because the bearings are so big. They what they call brinell hardening. They actually hit the sit on the bearings and they damage the bearing because the metal flows. It's it's a, it's a under it's not flowing in a sense, but it squeezes out. And so you, the bearing is shot. So the bearings have to be replaced, or you've got to have another motor up there turning the turbine over so it doesn't go to Brunel Hartnett. And so you've got four, at least 14,000 wind turbines in America lying idle, chopping them up. The blades, you know, 50 metres or more, and they're chopped in half and just buried. You can't, because they're graphene-based materials, um, and they're just chopping them up. And it's just a joke. A lot of companies are going bust in Sweden and Germany because they have to have subsidies to, to keep them going. So, and wind, look what happened recently in Australia. The Joe Nova site, you're going to go on the Joe Nova site, you'll find that a few months ago, the wind dropped almost to zero right across Australia for about 13 days. And there was, I've forgotten the numbers, but let's say there's 300 units of written down power that shipped kilowatts. It could be megawatts, gigawatts, and it was only doing about five of the whole of Australia. Absolutely shocked. Now, same with solar. Solar is, is technically good, but try and get rid of the solar panels. The material on the surface, is, it's, it, if it goes into the ground system and water gets into it and so on, 
it's going to damage poison the water and so on and also they don't work at night you've got to keep polishing the outside and the proof easy proof is just recently the fires in canada what happened to all those all of them up in northern america almost went to zero because they're coated in dust from the fire yeah, it, look, it just depends who's uh who's got the coin uh at the end of it isn't it and um certainly there's a lot of people getting fairly fairly wealthy out of uh peddling the wind and solar uh, agenda uh jeff just before we wrap up is there anything else we can talk about uh, let me just change the subject to give you some idea how we don't know what's going on and just take the arctic i want to take the arctic just to back on the climate change the arctic ocean arctic um say the northern pole north pole the arctic ice shelf loses about 10 million square kilometers every six months every six months 10 million goes from about 18 down to about seven or eight or something six seven or 16 down to six yeah, yeah. that order it loses 10 now 10 million square kilometers do you know what that is australia is 7.7 million square kilometers so the size of australia melts every six months and reforms in the next six months now if you fly to darwin that's not there perth's not there hobart's not there melbourne's not there and six months later it's all back there that's how big it is and of course on the antarctic the antarctic has got it's the highest continent in the world 2500 meters driest of course the lowest uh, humidity and you've got 16 million square kilometers now that's almost the size of russia russia is about 17 plus so imagine two times the size of australia melts every six months so you've got two australias melting let's take a us is just a bit bigger than australia so you've got a us and australia melts in six months and the us and, the, and australia reforms in the next six months now they don't talk about that and that's what i'm saying is that they're not being honest about what's actually happening and of course they're saying climate change is some of the stuff in the south pole is is affecting yes but look underneath down southern america there's a massive cleavage and hot waters coming up from underneath the and melting that from underneath you see so what we've got if you like the bigger picture stuff the average person doesn't know about the fact that antarctica floating ice by the way the arctic's all floating ice but the antarctic floating ice shelf it's massive the amount that's destroyed every six months and formed every six months and it's natural it's been going on for years so if you take that issue forget about some of these other issues that we could investigate and argue over and so on but yes water is certainly different and that um, certainly changes the structure remember we said it floats in itself the only fluid that floats in itself so otherwise everything underneath would be crushed <laughs> and and you also mentioned uh, not too long back in this interview jeff that uh, many most of the world's volcanoes was that the word you use is and are underwater yeah so one right. wonders how much effect that would have you know as a layperson to me that's the next question that comes into my head that well, how much of yeah. that melting of the polar ice is due to those well, it could be, but there's, it is in places. But if you just take another example, I've forgotten how many kilometres due west of, and I'll lock this into White Island in a minute. The Japanese were studying the temperatures of, this, of the Pacific Ocean, and I'm guessing it's two or three or 4,000 kilometres to the right of New Zealand. I don't know. I can't remember the numbers. But 
They're five degrees warmer than average. And they published a paper. They were really concerned about it. And, of course, the, the warm water was affecting it. And the, so there's obviously stuff going on underneath. Mm. Six months, nine months later, White Island. So White Island blew up. And it's all tied in with the same connectivity with this tremendous hot water situation. Now, I've not studied it. I've just read about it. Mm -hmm. But but there's there's another case in point where information is available, but they're not going to talk about it. Or there are factors, are interacting factors. Now, just today's paper, did you see that new uh, fault line that they found out the back of Pukakoi? There's a new fault line out. They've just discovered it because they've got new techniques in today's paper. So there's a lot of things that are happening or a lot of things that are existing there. And the geological fault lines are, are quite massive. Um, we got, of course, goes right through um, Wellington, as you know, and out to White Island up that way. And so we've got a lot of effects caused by activity that's not just in the air. And, of course, we don't talk about currents. We don't talk about waves. We don't talk about movement of water. Wind, roaring 40s and all of that. Yeah. Well, if we didn't have, for example, if we have a a conveyor belt that goes warm water up across the top of France between England and France, if it didn't exist, you'd have ice. You'd walk across from England to France. And it goes up near Finland and and dies out. Now, I've been up there. I used to live in Finland for a while, uh, in Sweden for a while. And just north of Sweden, you could drive across, and they they still can do it further up, drive across on the ice. They don't go up the top of Sweden. They just drive across the ice, come up to Finland. But it was quite low down this uh, uh, some years ago. So that that stream of water alone, so there's – and that's not that's not solar – that's kinetic energy. It's it's caused by all sorts of facts. It's not just a single fact. And these currents are there all the time. And and I'll give you another one. When you pick up ice from from the if you've got ice from, from the seawater and you go to say the South Pole and eat it, does it taste salty? No. Where does the salt go? It's just formed ice. And there's tons and tons per hour being formed. Pick up ice anywhere and you can eat it. Why? Because the, it extrudes the ice, the salt goes down into the water and you form this very thick brine and these fingers of brine are travelling up from the South Pole, for example, towards Australia or New Zealand and they're below the surface and they're much thicker than our brine concentration. And what happens? They slowly diffuse. We haven't talked about diffusion yet. That's a natural, just a slow moving of molecules. They get far and after just below Australia or just below New Zealand, it comes back to normal salt concentration again. But the concentration of salt when it forms, uh, where the brine forms, brine, B-R-I-N-E, it's quite interesting. And I mean, there are a lot of factors. Now, there's a concentration driving force. And, of course, once you got to, and people talk about, oh, the concentration, this concentration, that, I said, yes, that's true. But once you go to droplets, you can't talk about concentration. You've got to talk about population. Now, population, now you've got to talk about size. Then you talk about size, you've got to talk about the surface structure of the droplet, and then you've got to talk about the dynamics of the droplet. Now, I presented a paper at a chemical engineering conference recently, a couple of years ago, talking just about how the droplets interact and the forces there are enormous. So while you've got these guys doing modelling on climate change, look, within one hand span of your mouth, the humidity is different. 
if you go to the other side, imagine humidity in the other side of your room, it's humidity is different. So there's a humidity driving force, driving water vapor to 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 um, reach an equilibrium. And that's, if you like, that's the key thing, which is not talked about. The biggest principle in this world, which is not understood, I think, is equilibrium. Equilibrium occurs when there's no more driving force. Yeah. And we started off a talk and saying there's resistances and driving forces, and that's what I've been involved in and love. I, I'm very conscious of the fact, uh, Jeff, that you've repeatedly said, and we've not even touched that, and, and <laughs> we definitely we have to get you back. But just before we go, and mm-hmm. I, I think we should wind it up, I would like your comments on the state of this, the whole debate now, and I'll give you something. This was an, a statement by David Frame you know, mm-hmm. who's been doing modeling for the ag sector, who sort of rebutted your article and saying that our impact on climate is very clear. He began by stating Jeff Duffy's article, the methane stands way off track, contains scientific errors and omissions. And Dr. Duffy is entitled to have his opinions, but he's wrong about many issues of science, except one thing, we should not use rudimentary models for, stimulation, for simulation or prediction without strong experimental data. But he goes on to cite IPCC, and he completely, that's that's his stance. What does this tell you about the state of the whole climate and, you know, anthropogenic warming? Okay. Well, Today, where are we at? Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I don't know David Frame. I've never met him. I've never sent anything to him. He's never responded. I don't know how he got that unless you sent it to him. Okay, so the first thing people, and he's done this before because there was a meeting with the New Zealand Climate Coalition. So what he does, and not this is normal, it's sad really. It's not, I'm not blaming him. They attack you. You haven't got the thing. They attacked Wilhelm and Happer. Uh, Holmson and Happer. Now, they've done an absolutely brilliant 40-page stuff. The average person couldn't look at the mathematics of that. And Professor Dr. Sheehan is travelling around New Zealand now. He's giving nine talks. And uh, Ground Swell, look, I think, involved in all that, showing that methane is it's impossible for methane. Now, he, he, I believe, and he accused Happer and Wilhelmson as kind of being just kids in the block. These guys are cream de la cream. They are mathematicians. They're also in the top university, one of the top universities in, in America. And Hap has been around for a long time. And um, he was, um, if I remember rightly, he was Trump's advisor on climate change for a year. So first of all, and giving a good example, today in Parliament in America, they attacked the guy giving evidence today, Durham, three of them, attacked him for his personality and his family and his his kudos. They didn't look at the evidence he presented, which is available to everyone, evidence, they attacked him. And that's what happens, you see. What I would do, I would love to talk with him, sit down and talk through the issues and so on, but I've got no vested interest. I'm getting paid. I've retired. This is a personal interest. I've been involved for many years, much longer than he has, on dynamics and I haven't talked to you about the dynamics of, uh, of, of what's happening with droplets. And I'm not just talking about droplets. I've worked at the, the, uh, b- the gradients, the 
the mass transfer and simultaneous heat and mass transfer. I specialize, I've taught it for 40 years. I also taught, by the way, control, process control, automatic control. So I've done a lot more things which we haven't talked about today, but I'm not trying to win. I'm just saying, let's look at the factors and have an open discussion. But I'm afraid once you turn information and set someone up on a pedestal that he's got the gold and you make everyone else an idiot, then, of course, you and you base that on truth, then you'll get all this stuff that doesn't work. And I'll prove it to you. Within a few years, it won't be happening. That's the cause of truth. I don't it's mind. interesting. It's interesting. You um, uh, you talked about the the dynamics, um, and you've got lots of dynamics going on in your in your um presentation today. Uh, but I think the dynamic we need to fix fix is really uh, in the science fraternity. There does seem to be a dynamic that is seriously politicized, and uh, you know, as you say, the vested interests are, are pushing a barrow. Um, but but you know, Jeff. We live in hope. We live in hope that um, honesty and integrity will, will rise to the top. And uh, and we thank you for for your candid um, observations and presentation today. You've 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 seriously done a big job. You're probably one of Australia's best imports to New Zealand or exports <laughs> from Australia. Best import to here um, because you came here about 1970, I think. But yeah. I'd just like to alert the listeners to a um, chapter in a book that you're part of um, from Jennifer. Marahasi, uh, the facts, climate change, the facts 2020. And I know, Jeff, you have a chapter or two in there that's well worth reading, of course. And uh, that was published by the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia in 2020 or thereabouts, uh, I assume. Yeah, 2020. And yeah, and and we'll put up the links to your papers that you've given us uh, if we can and encourage the listeners to come to our RCR radio, you know, Reality Check Radio's Greenwash page and find those links. So um, on behalf of Jaspreet and I and our listeners, we're indebted uh, that you've given us your time um, and we thank you for it and look back, look to having you back um, in the very near future. Fantastic. Great. Well, thanks so much. Enjoyed it very much. And uh, it's also an interesting topic because it opens up discussion for interacting forces, interacting effects, rather than just criticise the hell out of someone. I'll give you, finishing up, I gave a talk at the University of Auckland, and the majority of people just were dumbfounded. They were engineers, by the way. And the top engineer that ever went through the University of Auckland got a high distinction, well above everyone else. And he said, I don't believe you. He went back to Brisbane and over the weekend. He said, I'm too busy. He rang to say, I'm Jeff. He said, I've been studying it all weekend. I couldn't put it down. I see where you're right now because Professor McKittrick in Canada said, it's water vapor, it's water vapor, it's water vapor. And that's <laughs> short. So, well, he's hoping we can see that water, water vapor. And by the way, it's not just vapor, it's droplets and ice crystals. It's that simple. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much. It is a water weapon. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.